You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? You're looking much improved, I would say. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, relatively speaking, over last week, you're looking much improved. Last week was pretty rough. Um, now, slowly healing, finally starting to feel like a regular human being again. I'm sufficiently chided by everybody who wrote in to complain about me not wearing a helmet while bicycling. I want everybody to know I learned my lesson there. Um, So, yeah, I can go back to being a good role model for the kids. Now, let's talk about this. You went back out to the scene of the crime and posted a photo to your social media of the offending pothole. That's right. Can we talk about the pathology of that, the psychology? It just seems like... You really seemed scarred by it and had well, to go back out there. It was like, I expected you to, you to say you've won the battle, but you have not won the war, pothole. Sort of like a fist-shaking, raging against the light. No, that. That would be some, some weird pathology No, but going that's on. how it came across, is what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I just wanted to go out there and see, because I hit it kind of in the dark, and right after I hit it and took a face plant into the street, I wasn't really of a mindset to go back and say, hey, wonder what that was. I hit. So I needed to go out the next day. You were worried it was a person. You were worried you'd killed a person in a drunken bicycling accident. Yeah, there you go. Uh, And then now I'm going to have to write that Lifetime movie script. But I wanted to go back out there and see if it was really as bad as it felt when I hit it kind of out of nowhere. And I honestly, I felt better seeing what a mean looking pothole that thing was. I don't know if it came across fully in the picture I took with my camera phone, but I mean, you... That thing is like four inches deep and just a sudden drop down into the pavement. You hit that on your bike going full speed out of nowhere. No chance, man. No chance. Game over. Have you called your city council member? See if you can get a little road work done up there? Yeah, I'm going to write some letters to the editor uh, for the newspaper. As soon as your hands heal up? Yeah. When you're back on the keyboard? That's right. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again presented by Receptra Naturals. As we started to tell you last week... Receptor Naturals provides premium, pure, CBD-rich hemp extract specially formulated for athletes and fitness enthusiasts. CBD works as a neuroprotectant, an anti-inflammatory, and an antioxidant, and it can have a host of positive effects on the body, including keeping you focused, sharp, and confident about your every move. Receptor Naturals has worked with MMA Hall of Famer Boss Rutan and with Bellator's Joe Warren, and maybe most excitingly, on our own podcast, the co-main event co-host Ben Folks has been out this week uh, taking their products for a spin. Ben, what'd you think? Yeah, you brought me some of it after we got our, our samples in, and I was very interested in the targeted topical cream. Uh, as you saw, my shoulder pretty banged up from yeah. scraping across the street there. Road rash, a lot of road rash. A lot there. of road rash. Look at it now. Look at it now. How about that? It's looking better. That's it's right. looking better. I've been smearing that, that targeted topical cream on there. It's helped a lot with the inflammation. Also, just that uncomfortable heat that you feel after scraping your, your bare skin across the pavement at high speed uh, really helps soothe a lot of that. Uh, and so I was pleased with the anti-inflammatory properties of it. Plus, then when my wife goes, hey, what are you smearing all over your body? I get to look her straight in the eye and say, cannabinoids. What? So a thumbs up. I'm pleased. Yeah. 
From hobbyists and amateurs to professionally contracted fighters, Receptra Naturals is in your corner. Check out their Active Lifestyle line of products featuring three hemp extracts, Active, Elite, and Pro, each with a different strength and a unique blend of essential fatty acids like MCT oil, grapeseed oil, and avocado oil, as well as turmeric for additional anti-inflammatory benefits. As an added bonus to our listeners, this part is new. The folks at Receptor Naturals tell me you can now go online and use the promo code CME15 to get 15% off your order. Again, that's at ReceptorNaturals.com, and the promo code is CME15 or CME15. We got music again this week from our colleague in the MMA media, Eric Fontanez. You can find his writing over at bloodyelbow.com, and if you like what you hear, you can find more of his music at soundcloud.com slash Eric Fontanez. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Chris Weidman finally won a fight on Saturday, and was I, was I the only one who preemptively started feeling sorry for the doormen and bouncers at all of Long Island's best clubs. And in round number two, Tyron Woodley fights Damian Maya this weekend, but that didn't stop him from spending UFC on Fox 25, working the desk as a UFC commentator alongside Kurt Menefee. So maybe he's not sweating it? Or maybe T. Wood is just all about maximizing those diverse revenue streams. And in round number three, did you ever notice that John Jones's facial hair amount is inversely proportional to how mad he is at any given time? That seems like bad news for DC. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. John Jones just has the goatee now. Yeah. Just Evil like the, John Jones. Yeah, the um it's kind of like an oval shaped. Lean and mean. With no mustache. Yeah. I think if you have the mustache you're technically supposed to call it a Van Dyke. Okay. Well, you wouldn't want to do that. Uh, also, when you get you, when you grow the big burly beard, like kind of Al Gore post presidential mm-hmm. defeat yeah, style. Yeah, exactly. That's that's, that's fun, mellow, John Jones. That's fun, John Jones. Yeah, that's the John Jones you you don't need to worry about quite as much. This John Jones, yikes, man, yikes. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Carver T. He writes, Ben and Chad, I'm almost afraid to ask this question because we might jinx it in some way, but Robbie Lawler and Cowboy Cerrone are supposed to fight on Saturday. Can you break it down for us? Or should we instead just sit here quietly, hoping the MMA gods don't notice how excited we all look? Yeah, I don't want them to hear us talking. Then get it in their heads to come down off of Mount Zion and yank this one away from us again. Right, I mean, it's a valid concern, because Lawler versus Cerrone has already been postponed twice, right? The first time, it took seemingly a matter of minutes. Right. Like the, the fight yes. was announced and then immediately yanked off the table the second time it was supposed to be back at ufc 213 correct yeah and then you got the blood infection cowboy cerrone got an infection cowboy cerrone uh casually mentioning what i believe he referred to as a real bad infection in his blood (laughs) so just give him a couple weeks to get back on the horse and here we are don't put it like that your mom is gonna freak out man when she hears that when she hears something about how her son has a real bad infection in his blood you put her through enough Already being a professional fighter, don't you think? Well, I would have to think if any of Cowboy Cerrone's family members are following any of his social media accounts, they are probably pretty well-versed in what he's what what's up with him Yeah, from one moment to the next. That's a good point. You know what Carver T does in bringing up this fight and the uh, appropriate amount of fear that just our excitement alone will be enough to ruin it? It did just kind of remind me, give me a little bit of a pinch and say, oh yeah, that shit is really going to happen, supposedly. And that is awesome. Which I think, like, that's a compliment to the nature of this UFC 214 card, right? For a while, 
for a couple weeks there prior to UFC 213, I thought to myself, UFC 213 might be the first like legitimately great MMA card of the year. And then you end up pulling uh, Cerrone versus Lawler off of it. And obviously uh, Amanda Nunes, the bantamweight women's bantamweight champion fell off the card eventually. And so it was kind of an, it is what it is type situation for UFC 213 by the the time we got to fight night. But you can roll those feelings now over times 10 into UFC 214, which at least on paper uh, has a chance to be the the event of the year, which I mean, granted so far is not saying much, but uh, this is a stacked card. It is. It also makes me wonder, you know, when I remember that, oh yeah, these two are going to fight. And then I'm like, okay, what, what stakes are we even going to bother attaching to this one? Or do we not do that with this fight? Do we just say, here's one that we just is an offering up to the idea of violence itself? Yeah, that's what it is. Okay. Well, I mean, you got Robbie Lawler hasn't fought in almost exactly a year, right? Since losing the uh, welterweight title to Tyron Woodley at UFC 201 uh, by first round knockout. So, uh you know, Lawler clearly comes in with stakes, right? He doesn't want to go zero and two. He doesn't want to have back to back losses here. He doesn't want to lose to 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 Donald Cerrone for sure. But at the same time, um, he, it's, he he hasn't felt like he's in the mix. You know what I'm saying? Maybe right. just because of his inactivity. But uh, it's not like I don't think Robbie Lawler is going to vault himself immediately back into like number one contender status by winning this fight. Uh, especially with, uh, you know, Woodley and Maya on the same card. Uh, I would think that we've got some some business to do before we get around to to granting that rematch, the Woodley-Lala rematch, assuming Tyron Woodley escapes UFC 214 with the belt. So it's like it's better for Robbie Lawler to win this than lose it, certainly, but it's almost like a, a get-back-on-the-horse type fight for Robbie Lawler, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, and I think also in this one, if you ask yourself what becomes of the loser, it it won't really matter that much. I mean, obviously, like you said, better to win than to lose a professional prize fight inside a cage against another man. But even the loser of this one, as long as he doesn't look absolutely awful and just get trucked, you still, you, you're there for the sake of entertaining violence here. You lose to Donald Cerrone, or if you're Donald Cerrone and you lose to Robbie Lawler, there's no real shame in that. Right. And it seems like both these guys might be at a similar point in their career where what we really want out of them is just to see them show up and let it all hang out and not worry too much about the result. I mean, tough to guess get that point across if they're still doing uh, show and win money. I don't know exactly what those guys' contracts are off the top of my head, but you would like to see those guys go out there with the idea like, People want the show out of this one. They're not that concerned the way, or at least to the extent they usually are, about wins and losses here. Yeah, and I think we talked about this with Donald Cerrone before, that like his strategy of kind of an anywhere, anytime, uh, anybody philosophy in terms of taking fights has has like created almost its own world around Donald Cerrone where, uh, you know, I, I think that... It, People that that are fans of his would like to see him cash in and win the title at some point, but at, at the same time, he it's almost like he's the Undertaker in WWE. Like he doesn't need the title. He doesn't necessarily even need to be in title contention as long as you've got compelling matchups for Donald Cerrone. People are going to watch because yeah. he's that kind of promotional figure in the sport. Yeah, and I would I would argue Robbie Lawler, despite the fact that he comes into this fight 
one fight removed from being the champion is kind of the same deal at this point. Like, we will watch Robbie Lawler no matter what. Yeah. Well, and see, that's the thing is it seems like recently, especially for Donald Cerrone, the UFC has kind of decided, yeah, that's what we're going for is we're just looking for matchups that play to that concept and that reason why people are watching Donald Cerrone. You throw Robbie Lawler in there, and then you got just a couple of violence weights. It doesn't really matter where it happens. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about this actual physical matchup here? It seems to me like the times that we've seen Donald Cerrone lose during this part of his UFC career, you know, he lost to uh, George Masvidal in his last fight. He lost twice to uh, Rafael Dos Anjos and then Anthony Pettis and Nate Diaz. You could argue in all of those fights, it's been a guy who's going to come out and go right in his face, right? And that's kind of the fighter that Robbie Lawler is. So do you feel like skills-wise and uh, just in terms of physicality that that this shapes up as a fight that might test Donald Cerrone's uh, ability to be a quick starter, which is something that he has always kind of like uh, criticized himself for? Yeah, I, and I think also when he fights guys that have a really good ability to dictate the range... Uh, that the fight takes place at and not just hang out right where Donald Cerrone wants them, then he he sometimes had problems with that as well. I, to me, though, there's just so many variables that you don't know how to adjust for. For one thing, Robbie Lawler, like you said, not having fought in a year since uh, getting knocked out, losing the title. So that's kind of a long time to come back from. Then, though, Donald Cerrone... You're telling, you're telling me that he was just, it was impractical to have him fight at UFC 213. Infection in his blood, had a torn groin or something from uh, the sound of it, pulled groin maybe. Uh, and yet it's not unreasonable to have him turn around and fight at this one. That makes me question how physically fit he must really be. Because obviously if he was going to fight with that stuff anyway, you know Donald Cerrone, if he can go, he's going to try to get in there and go. But... If you're not 100% against a guy like Robbie Lawler, even a Lawler who hasn't fought in a year, man, you could get your head knocked clean off. That's a solid point. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Bastian Schweinstager, who I understand... Yeah, famous uh, soccer player. You knew this one on site. That's right. You did this this one, one I actually knew. Didn't have to Google this one. So the, the co-main event podcast listeners are going to have to become a little bit trickier if they're going to slip one past don't, the folks. Don't go for the superstars, people. I've heard of some of those guys. All right. Anyway, he writes, so with a win streak as long as Taylor Swift's list of ex-boyfriends. Oh, timely <laughs> reference there. Yeah. Wow. Is it 2010? Did, why did we have to go after the Swiftness? I don't understand that. Like, Maybe. She's just minding her own business. Did she used to, to date Bastion Swansteiger? It's possible, man. I don't know. Maybe some sour grapes there? Anyway, here's the meat of this question. Surely Jimmy Rivera can now be in title contention at 135. Discuss, por favor, uh... So, Ben, obviously, uh, UFC on Fox 25 this past weekend, Jimmy Rivera comes out, gets a big bantamweight win over Thomas Almeida in the curtain jerker on the main card on the Fox network, wins this fight via uh, unanimous decision uh, in, a, in a very good, very entertaining bantamweight fight, and then Jimmy Rivera making the most of his time on the network during his post-fight interview with Brian Stan, uh, calls out former champ Dominic Cruz, and then goes up to the cage so they can have a conversation. Uh, you know, Jimmy well, Rivera... First he was saying he would fight for that interim belt. Sure. If possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then if not, so he, so he had a backup plan. Sure. He went to plan A. He had a plan A and a plan B. That's right. And plan C is like he'll guest host Family Feud if you need him to. I, that, I, that's, that's a guy who is showing you how it's done out there. Because it was just succinct. Bam, bam. Here's what I'll do. Uh, and then... 
goes up there and has some words for Dominic Cruz through the cage where he's telling him, like, hey, I respect you and everything, to which Dominic Cruz with the awesome retort, I get it, you respect me, you should. Uh, already, I'm interested. Yeah. Good work, fellas. Yeah, Jamie Rivera only been in the UFC for a couple of years, but he has won 20 fights in a row dating back to 2000. Actually, his last loss was November of 2008. Uh, back at Ring of Combat 22, which I know we all remember. Uh, since, oh, yeah. then, since then, he's fired off 20 wins. Uh, almost all of his UFC wins are over people that we know. He come in, came in to this Almeida fight off of the unanimous decision win over Uriah Faber at UFC 203. So if you need guys to make noise down there in the men's 135-pound uh, division, well, you got a new one in Jimmy Rivera, and uh, he's made himself a top-five guy here. Uh, in pretty short order. Well, and this was a, a smart fight on his part. It was still an exciting fight, but it goes out there and, uh, you know, he drops Thomas Almeida a couple times in the first, gets dropped himself in the second. Uh, in the third, thinking, you know, maybe it might be close, made strategic use of takedowns and, and had good timing there. It just kind of showed that he could do absolutely everything, that there's no glaring weak points in there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you look at bantamweight right now and... It, it's this, a similar kind of thing is happening that happened to Featherweight a while back where suddenly it's like you blinked and there's a bunch of talented fighters there who you're interested in seeing against each other. So this is somebody, you know, against TJ Dillashaw, sure. Against uh, Cody Garbrandt at some point, okay. Against, uh, you know, Dominic Cruz, yes. Yeah, John Lineker. Yeah, oh, absolutely. John Dodson. I mean, you're starting to, like we talk about, like you said, at 145 pounds, you can't swing a dead cat down there without hitting an awesome matchup. It's, you're right. It's starting to feel like that right now at bantamweight as well. And uh, Jimmy Rivera, a welcome addition, I would say, to that roster. Next question this week comes to us from Josh Masters. He writes, Chris Cyborg and the UFC seem to be experiencing a honeymoon, a honeymoon period now that they've given her a, that they give, they've given her a shot at the title. If she blows through Tanya Evinger and then fights Holly Holm, I feel like it could finally put her on a nice little roll in the UFC. I have this nagging feeling, though, in the back of my mind, wondering how long before the cyborg-UFC relationship blows up again. Please discourse. Yeah, it's a good point that uh, the surprising kind of honeymoon period, because when I heard Dana White admit we've made some mistakes with cyborg, that's when I thought, wow, the, yeah. the worm has turned here. Indeed. Because it wasn't so long ago, Cyborg was just pissing you off with every little thing that she seemed to do. And now, like, to get the UFC to ever admit, to get Dana White to admit that he made a mistake, that's rare enough in itself. Yeah. Uh, and then to somebody with somebody who they had been frustrated with in the very recent past, I don't, I made me wonder how much of that was them seeing like, okay, there is some real potential here with Cyborg that right. we may have missed, and how much of it was looking around at the women's landscape right now and going, well, shit, you not, you got to have somebody. Yeah. And as far as who gets the eyeballs, that's Cyborg right now. Yeah, like she has proved herself to be a fairly significant draw in that division, and maybe with those, you know, with Dana White suddenly coming around on an about face there about, about Cyborg Justino, maybe you had a couple of different things going on at once. Number one, starting to look like a pretty good chance that she's going to wind up as one of your champions pretty soon, maybe as uh, arguably one of your more marketable champions at the moment. So, you know, ostensibly it's better to be on good terms with her than, than on bad terms with her. And I also wonder if that uh, Jermaine Durandamy women's featherweight title reign uh, cast Cyborg Justino in a more favorable favorable light. You know what I mean? Like, uh, 
we had one featherweight champ that didn't work out. At least we got one that we know will fight any damn buddy. That's true. That's true. Even though it, the reason we ended up with that other one was because uh, Cyborg said that she wasn't ready to fight when the UFC wanted to put on its inaugural women's featherweight title fight. But yeah, you're right. At least you do know that she's not going to look at any particular opponent that she might be offered and think, no, I'd rather not fight her. I mean, Cyborg is the one who knocks in this situation. <laughs> How about the, the matchup, though, with Tanya Evinger? Because if she goes in there and she just smashes Tanya Evinger, you know, I'm all about Tanya Evinger stepping up, taking the opportunity here, uh, getting in the UFC by stepping in as a replacement here for Cyborg. And that's a fight that interests me. I love me some Tanya Evinger. It seems like a horrible style matchup for her in a lot of ways. And if Cyborg just smashes her, I'll, all I can say is I hope the UFC will, will do the right thing for Tanya Evinger moving forward. Yeah, um, well, you'd think that that would have been one of Tanya Evinger's stipulations. Or I, you know, you'd if hope. I, if I were representing her, that would have been one of my stipulations to come in and fight Ju Cyborg Justino. I would have said, well, we want three fights, you know, something like that. Uh, Tanya Evinger is one of these rare people in this sport, Ben, that has managed to... Uh, not just like make herself into a quasi star, but thrive and like uh, expand her own personal brand. I, I hate talking about people like this way, but like expanding her own personal brand and like becoming arguably more visible on her own on the sort of independent scene fighting an Invicta uh, without the UFC's blessing. That doesn't happen that often. No. And so uh, it, it's a feel good moment. I think to see her finally get her shot in the UFC proper uh, and, it is a rough matchup against Cyborg uh, Justino, uh, uh, a division up from where Tanya Evinger uh, typically fights. Uh, and you're right that I, I hope that she gets a uh, uh, win, lose, or draw another another shot at this thing. But the thing about Tanya Evinger has always been she definitely uh, does things her own way. And uh, it always felt like if she was going to get a shot in the UFC, it was going to be as an injury replacement or as like kind of a last minute add on to one of these cards. I think she has said that herself. So it doesn't necessarily feel that surprising to see her step in here for Megan Anderson and fight uh, Cyborg Justino kind of on short notice. And this one also, when you think about it, this is kind of a super fight champion versus champion yeah. Oh, yeah. champion from a lower weight class that's, coming up. Let's start calling everything a super fight. But this one, you actually could make that case. I mean, there Cyborg was the champion in Invicta. Uh, Tanya Evinger, still the champion uh, of her weight class in Invicta. And now, here you go. This thing, again, it's like when the UFC promised us the year of the super fight, and never, none of those ever came to fruition. And then you get stuff like this where you actually couldn't make that claim about it. And it feels like it kind of flies, that aspect of it kind of flies under the radar. Yeah. And like, I, I remember we talked about this once with Cyborg Justino when it seemed like the UFC was trying to figure out what to do with her. And we threw out the idea, well, man, you should just let her bring her Invicta featherweight title to the UFC and defend it there uh, back before the UFC had a dedicated women's featherweight division. And I do kind of wish that promotionally the UFC would do more stuff like that. I, like, it would be awesome if they let Tanya Evinger bring her Invicta title out there uh, and made this seem like a, a bigger deal on, oh, this, on this fight card. If she's not walking around with that belt all week, basically, I'm going to be disappointed. That will be an opportunity missed. Last question this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, social media was ramped up uh, with some recreational outrage as to why UFC on Fox 25 had the lowest ratings of any big Fox event. 
Was it a weak card, poor promotional pull, or competing with other sports and or summer activities? All these could be true, but as a guy who watches every UFC event, I have to DVR these Fox cards because who has time to sit through all those fucking commercials? Apparently 1.64 million people. Do you think it's possible that the ratings have dipped because after 25 events, casual fans are no longer willing to sit through hours of inane, repetitive commercials? I don't watch other sports regularly, so I can't make a comparison, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a fair point. Just in general, I think that if you were making the case for that people need to sit there and watch this live and endure the, the endless commercials for a bunch of old people products, which always seems to be what I get when I watched, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's a different. Median age, median age of who's watching these cards is going up. Yeah. Well, and so it's, we got to see a bunch of ads for like stuff to keep from killing yourself in the bathtub. Uh, and then just like weird lights you can put all around your house, like on the floor so you don't trip and break a hip. But I, I think also though, we talked about this before this card for a Fox event, it lacked a lot of the usual juice mm -hmm. that, you know, and not just lacking big names, but, you know, usually the Fox cards would, you know, throw like a, a women's fight on there that had a little bit of more mainstream appeal, uh, some big names at the top, you know, a couple bangers to open up the card, something like that, and ha squeeze some pretty good, attractive action into that four-fight offering. And this one, you know, the main event was interesting to hardcore fight fans, but I would not be surprised, especially during the summertime, if people decided, you know what, I can DVR this one and catch it later. Because, you know... Going against other sports should not be that big of a concern in late July. I mean, this is kind of where you – I mean, this is why you want to do that big boxing pay-per-view at the end of August because you're kind of in the lull right now where there's not a whole lot of competition from other sports. But, yeah, if you're trying to decide whether you should go out for some ice cream with your kids or sit home, you know, and sit through a whole bunch of commercials, uh, just so you can see Patrick Cummins and Gian Vionte, I mean, make mine with sprinkles, man. I'll catch that shit later on right. the flip side. Yeah, we talked about this last week, that this was kind of like a weirdly low-profile Fox event. You know, especially the main event, Chris Weidman, who's a former champion, but comes in off, off three losses and has never been a guy that was a huge ratings or pay-per-view draw for the UFC, even though he had been uh, very successful for the company uh, leading up to that three-fight losing streak. And you put him opposite Kelvin Gastelum, who obviously is still on the upswing, but is not a, a significant promotional piece at this point could be maybe in the future, but, but right now it felt this whole thing felt a little bit anonymous to me. Uh, and you didn't even uh, really put uh, any of the usual suspects. I guess you would say if you were a person who, who uh, only interacted or primarily interacted with the UFC through these Fox events, you didn't see a lot of uh, recognizable or familiar faces. You here. want your Paige Van Zants, is yeah. what you're saying. and probably you want your Demetrius Johnsons. And your Nate Diaz. Right. Well, he's not doing that shit anymore. And I don't know if they if they did that on purpose because this was sort of like a mid-summer kind of uh, event that goes down in the doldrums and a week before what ostensibly should be the biggest UFC card of the, of the summer and a few weeks removed from UFC 213, which when they booked all this stuff probably looked like it was going to be a bigger deal. Uh, so... If anything, I would say the low-profile nature of this event is probably to blame for those ratings. Although, I will also say, I kind of agree with Devin Scott that once upon a time, I felt like the awesome thing about these UFC on Fox cards was that you would get in and out in two hours. Four fights, uh, you didn't have to sit through the, the six-fight main card of the FS1 shows or... or you know, you didn't. They start early on yeah, Fox. Yeah, so starts at six p.m. this you time. You didn't feel like you were going to be there till late. Uh, but at this point, 
and I'm, they're probably budgeting for this time-wise, it does feel as though the pace has slowed. Yeah, maybe. Well, and also, I mean, this one, the co-main event was Darren Elkins and Dennis Bermudez. Sure. So, what did we expect there? But you bring up a good point that with UFC 214 next, or, you know, this coming weekend, one of the big appeals for you, if you're the UFC, should that you can use this network uh, opportunity to promote your upcoming pay-per-view, but that doesn't work if people don't watch. Right. And they tried a little bit. We got that terribly awkward interview between Daniel Cormier and John Jones, which I'm sure we'll talk about coming up in round one. As for right now, that's the end of Listener Mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording this podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. And right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, as we talked about last week, and as we implied during the intro part of this show... The main event of UFC on Fox 25 was kind of a must-win situation for Chris Weidman, uh, who went from undefeated to kind of down and out over the course of a three-fight losing streak that stretched from December of 2015 to April of 2017. He needed this win against Kelvin Gastelum, uh, and he it looked to me very much like Chris Weidman came out there, and even though there were some dicey moments in this fight, it almost looked to me like the game plan was, all right, well, we know what works. And that is Chris Weidman's takedowns and wrestling. Let's stick to what brought it with, well, let's stick to what brought us to the dance and just go out there, kind of a back to basics game plan, wrestle this thing away from Kelvin Gastelum and maybe look for the opportunity to catch a submission uh, somewhere in the later rounds. And also don't get standing there flat footed while he's throwing that left hand at you, which he did right. at the end of the first round and it nearly cost him the fight. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it is a, a good back-to-basics win for him. Also, in some of those grappling exchanges, the size difference was really apparent. It was. Uh, but, you know, doing what he had to do there and getting that win, and then immediately going from 0 to 60 in the post-fight interview where he declares himself the champ and the best in the world. Well, yeah, and I mean, let's look, man. The, the, with how middleweight is, is going right now, you got Michael Bisping, uh, still recovering from from surgery, and we don't know who he's going to end up fighting. You got an interim champion in Robert Whitaker. Just got that big win over Yoel Romero. If you're Chris Weidman and you're still hanging around at number five overall in the middleweight division, you did just snap that extended skid. But it's also not unthinkable that Weidman could tumble into like an interim title fight here yeah. if. Uh, Michael Bisping either goes and lands that George St. Pierre fight that he's been chasing around or uh, just isn't. Or doesn't. Yeah, right. And just like kind of isn't ready to go. You look down the, the top five. Heck, you look down the top ten of the UFC middleweight division. They just announced Luke Rockhold against David Branch during this 
UFC on Fox event. A little weird, but okay. It was very strange, I would say. Almost everybody else, Yoel Romero, uh, Jacare Souza, uh, is coming off a loss. And so, like, if you're Chris Weidman and they, they need an opponent for Robert Whitaker and it's not going to be Michael Bisping, uh, it kind of seems like it could be Chris Weidman. Or, you know, if Robert Whitaker, he says that he probably won't need surgery, but is also probably going to be out until 2018. And Michael Bisping already has not been that active recently. If he can't get the George St. Pierre fight, how long are you going to have him sit around there and wait for Bobby Knuckles? You know, it's not completely unfeasible that you do say, you go ahead and say, all right, let's throw Chris Weidman in there. We've done sillier things before than give a guy who's one and three in his last four a title shot. And then if you do give him that shot, Chris Weidman probably comes into that fight as a betting favorite, Chad, which is that's where the whole thing gets weird at middleweight because everybody seems to regard the champion as fairly easy pickings for the first real contender he has to face. And so it's this kind of race to see who can be the first guy to get there. Uh, and, you know, may, I think some of that, again, is the same thing that's been happening to Michael Bisping all his career, where people, because of his personality, which they have a just really strong disdain for, they, uh, you know, underestimate his fighting abilities. I think he's always better than people think he is, and more resilient, at least, than people think he is. But I can understand why all those guys are looking at him like this is the, the closest thing to a free lunch you, you've gotten in a long time at middleweight especially with all the absolute murderers you have to get past just to get close to that. And with Chris Weidman's losing streak, too, I mean, you could do the thing, like we've sometimes said you can always do with somebody's wins where you can go back through. You could do that thing with his losses here. You really can. The, the one with Gegard Mousasi had that weird stoppage that, I mean, he was looking like he was fading in that fight, but still, you know, it wasn't really his fault. Uh, then the one with Yoel Romero, he was winning that fight until he got a little too predictable and caught the flying knee upside the head. You know, the, the Luke Rockhold one, you go up against Luke Rockhold, he made some tactical mistakes in that one, and Luke Rockhold made him pay for it immediately. You know, none of those look too bad right now. Right, and it's, it's interesting that you brought that up, because I did want to talk about what we feel like Chris Weidman's standing in this division is, and what, like, his future fortunes will be. Because uh, he does get this win pretty impressively, third round, arm triangle choke submission over Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, he dominated most of the fight, turned it into a real takedown clinic. I believe he scored 13 takedowns uh, or something like that, or 7 of 13 maybe is what it was, uh, according to the official fight metric statistics. Uh, and, you know, in those three rounds, uh, he used that single leg that he likes. He used a, an ankle pick. He used a foot sweep. He used a double leg. It was kind of like whatever Weidman wanted to do from a takedown perspective he could do. And once he figured out that, if he put Kelvin Gastelum on his back in the middle of the cage rather than right up against the fence, that he was going to be have an easier time keeping him there uh, rather than uh, letting him right back up to the feet. But like you said, Ben, there was that dicey moment in the first round where uh, it looked like it was going to be a Chris Weidman fight where yep. everything goes along fine until suddenly it's not fine anymore. Seeing him get this win... Do you remain skeptical a little bit of, of how he's going to be in the future just because all three of these losses to Luke Rockhold, UL Romero, and Gegard Mousasi, while weird, I would admit, they were all also kind of ugly TKO stoppages. So right. to see him get dropped by Kelvin Gastelum, uh, both was a feel-good moment, I thought, to see Weidman get the win, but also I, I felt like there were also some red flags still sort of lingering around this thing. Right, and also that he relied on his ability to kind of out-wrestle, out-grapple, and physically dominate on the mat, 
a much smaller opponent who was coming up from welterweight and just couldn't make the weight at welterweight. And how is that going to translate if you have to try that against somebody like Luke Rockhold again or somebody like Bobby Knuckles? Uh, you know, that could be a much tougher go against a bigger opponent. And you do wonder about that. If, if you have to try to rely on that and you also still have the ability to stand there every once in a while and just get caught, that could be a really bad night against a whole lot of dudes in that division. Or, you know, Chris Weidman trying to do that against Jacare Souza. How does that go? I'm guessing he doesn't catch him in an arm triangle choke is just that's that's my one prediction about that potential matchup. So yeah, I'd still need to see a little bit more from Chris Weidman before I uh rejoin the team and and agree hey, with him that <laughs> all you dudes all over the world keep doubting him. He dares you. Well, I mean, when it's sometimes you give people a reason to doubt you, <laughs> it's not like it's personal where they're saying like I think that this guy is a is a a weak, bad person, but you know, they, you lose three in a row. Some doubts will creep into some people's minds. Um, and then you're going to do an awkward dance around the cage before you, you head out to the club, I guess. Let's talk briefly about Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, I like this broadcast team that the UFC has now, uh, with John Anik, uh, Brian Stan and Dominic Cruz. Yeah. They made the point while Kelvin Gastelum was on the way to the cage here that he said he felt no pressure uh, that he was prepared to fight like he felt no pressure. And he really, he kind of did, actually. But, like, they made the point, hey, you got a 25-year-old kid. Uh, he's really streaking. He should have had three wins in a row had that Vitor Belfort win not been overturned for, uh, you know, questionable reasons. Cannabinoids. Arguably silly reasons. Uh, he's always, he's never dropped the idea of going back to welterweight. He's no. He's always kind of seen like. to it like a drowning wanted, man to a piece of driftwood. Right, like he wanted to go back to welterweight. So the UFC broadcast team kind of made the the point, hey, if he loses, he's still 25. He could still go back to 170 pounds. Can and he, though? And maybe now that he has this loss, it, like, gives some momentum to his own wishes to go back to 170. Because previous to this, we were like, nope, forget about it. Well, you know You've what? missed weight three times. Let's stay at 185. You look great here. Now seeing him look somewhat small and losing to Chris Weidman in this fashion... Do we rethink that? Yes, because if you'll recall, one of the things that I said about that was... I don't recall anything that you said. No, you, Come of course on. you don't. You won't, you won't recall this five minutes after I'm done saying it. But he, when he was saying all that, like when he was beating Tim Kennedy in the way, but then still saying he wanted to go back to 170, and the thing I said was he should be forced to stay until he loses. And loses preferably by being just like overpowered and undersized. Uh, and then he can make the case like, see, look... Uh, it's just a problem for me fighting these bigger guys. I need to be allowed to go back down in the division where uh, I can fight people my own size. And now this is, you can make the case that that's exactly what happened against Chris Weidman, that he fought a bigger dude who kind of manhandled him on the mat, and that's why he lost. And now, you know, if he can reasonably convince somebody that he will make the weight, yeah, I think he might have a compelling case for it. Or you hang around and just keep lighting the candles every night and praying that they create a 175-pound division, and then you will just rule that shit. Yeah. And like I said, things are so uh, chaotic at middleweight right now. If you're Kelvin Gastelum, it also might not be a terrible idea to just kind of hang around and be a guy who could make weight yeah. like, at, at, the, at the drop of a hat, right? Because we might need that here at 185 pounds. Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then uh, we'll move on to round number two. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of... Uh, apparently, the McGregor-Mayweather fight is big enough now that the... The crazy headlines have started to reach out into the more mainstream uh, 
media world. I'm going to read you a couple of recent headlines that I saw pop up, and I, I wrote a column about this, but this bears repeating here. Uh, from Will Leitch in uh, New York Magazine, it seems like sports can't sink much lower than Mayweather-McGregor, but just wait. From Charles P. Pierce, who I really like, yep. uh, writing for Sports Illustrated, Floyd Mayweather Jr. versus Conor McGregor is the worst of sports and society. Oh, ouch. The worst of society? Really? Yes. Okay. Uh, and from Deadspin, from Dan McQuay to Deadspin, Mayweather versus McGregor isn't even pretending to be sports anymore. Now, I understand that the matchup itself, kind of ridiculous, the whole carnival press tour where they just sank lower and lower into the abyss of name-calling. That was fucking ridiculous. But all this stuff where you try to act like it is some low point for sports and society, are you fucking kidding me? Because, man, you know what was on TV last night, Chad? What? Michael Phelps raced a fucking shark. Only he didn't even race a shark. He raced a CGI simulation of a great white shark, and that's what people were mad about. They were mad that it wasn't a real shark in there with Michael Phelps. That's the culture where that, that we are in right now, is that we want to see a fucking shark in there in the water with an Olympic great. And if we get anything less than that, we are pissed off about it. So don't tell me that McGregor Mayweather is going to just tear the social fabric apart. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, did you see on social media where uh, heavyweight fighter Junior Albini got his first win in the octagon over turn-of-the-century magician Tim Johnson? Uh, and then he said he hoped to get a win bonus because he's so poor, his kids don't have any toys, and they play with empty shampoo bottles. First of all, I guess, on a lighter note, take it from this father of three, that you can buy those kids all the damn toys you want, man, and they will still play with those empty shampoo bottles. That's true. More importantly, though, are you fucking kidding me? That is horrifying. Can we please... I'm, I'm glad that Junior Albini got the uh, fight of the night bonus or performance of the night bonus here, but can we just give this guy all the money? Like, can we just <laughs> give him all the money in the world? He seems like a lovely dude. I'm sure, sure his children are wonderful. Are you fucking kidding me? Let's make sure that Junior Albini's kids have some toys to play with. That's heartbreaking. Also, I don't know if you noticed, though, that the fight right before his, uh, Shane Burgos won, beat Godofredo Pepe, and I believe it was him who then asked for the bonus, uh, explaining that he lives like in a tiny 700-square-foot apartment uh, with his kids, and uh, he really could use the bonus. And it sounded like, oh, yeah, he's got a pretty good shot, man. You know. Uh, and then uh, right after that... Up the ante, kids are playing with shampoo bottles. Boom. Yeah. Damn yeah. it. Well, then I saw Shane Burgos was on Twitter, I think maybe today, saying that he's, what, 3-0 and in the UFC and that his friends and family want to buy his, uh, his jersey, but that it's not available from Reebok. So he went at Reebok to let them know that they could make some sales if they, uh, they go ahead and print up the Shane Burgos. I'm sure fight they'll, they'll get right on that. I'm sure. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, go dig the VCR out of the garage, blow that fine layer of dust off it, plug it in, and get out your tape of Demi and Maya's jiu-jitsu for MMA, because here we go, he's getting the shot. Got the call to fight Tyrone Woodley here, T. Wood, at UFC 214 in the co-main event. 
And this one seems like the kind of fight that you throw on a pretty stacked fight card where all the hardcores know how important it is and what an interesting matchup it is, and yet we should also be smart enough to prepare ourselves for the possibility that this will actually suck to sit through as a fan experience. Yeah. And I'm prepared for that. Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's fascinating from that aspect, though, right? Like, it's, a number one, a feel-good story for 39-year-old Demi and Maya, who it felt like just kept hanging around and hanging around and winning fights at 170 pounds until he had seven in a row with three submissions and two performance of the night bonuses. And UFC matchmakers looked around and said, we don't got anybody else. So let's stick Damian Maya in this title fight with Tyron Woodley. And yet, Ben, undercutting the notion of like that feel-good story is the idea that this could turn out to be a really damn tough matchup for Damian Maya. And that, I think, is where this question of whether or not we're going to get a lot of really scintillating action out of this fight comes in. Because I think we can say with all certainty that the last thing Damian Maya wants to do is stand up with Tyron Woodley uh, and, and face those murder balls that this guy throws. And yet, Tyron Woodley also comes in with this wrestling pedigree that arguably might make it super hard for Damian Maya to get him to the ground. And if he gets him to the ground might make it hard for uh, Damian Maya to lock up one of those submissions. So there you have what is probably the million-dollar question in this fight. Can Damian Maya get Tyron Woodley to the ground? And if he can, can he capitalize on it? Well, yeah, and for the first question, I say, yeah, he can, He probably can get him to the ground at least once, especially because one of the things I love about Damian Maya's game is it's, for MMA at least, unorthodox approach to getting the fight to the ground. Because he does not need to just shoot in and take you down. Although, he can do that. We've seen, especially in last few fights, against guys who know exactly what's coming, he can just get up in there and take you down. But he also is not afraid to pull a half guard on your ass and work from there. Which I really appreciate. And, you know, he's gotten some pretty good wrestlers down in the past. You know, guys like... Uh, Neil Magny, you know, Chael Sonnen, remember when he just tossed Chael Sonnen right at the beginning of the fight? Um, guys like Jake Shields, uh, and I think that that ability is there. However, capitalizing on it is going to be the tough part, because if you're Demian Maya, you don't want to have to do this for five rounds, especially when each round starts standing, and Tyron Woodley is not going to be easy to get down there, so you're going to have to take a lot of risks in order to keep getting him down over and over again. You need to get him down and finish him pretty quickly, I would think. Um, or you need to wear him out uh, so that you can capitalize Leighton, and he's not so dangerous if you can wear him down uh, for later in the fight. Uh, but that's way easier said than done, man. Especially, you know, because Tyron Woodley, it's not like he has not been preparing for everything that Damian Maya does. He's, he's watching the VHS tapes just like everybody else. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's no secret, obviously, as to what Damian Maya wants to do here. When you were naming all of those wrestlers that Damian Maya's put on on their back, I couldn't help but think I don't know that any of those dudes has like the physicality of a Tyron Woodley. Uh, you know, this guy's a big 175 or 170 pounder. Uh, he, he's 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 got power in his hands. He's got those wrestling skills. I don't know what the odds are like uh, for this fight, but. Um, if I had money I never wanted to see again, I think Tyron Woodley would be my guy. I know that breaks your heart. About a, about a two-to-one favorite for Tyron for, Woodley. For Tyron Woodley? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to Well, me. you know, and it, it doesn't really break my heart because I understand what's happening here. And I understand, like, especially with the what we're doing with this fight, the UFC has, I think, not incorrectly decided that Tyron Woodley, even as a champion, is not going to be a huge pay-per-view seller. 
He's not super popular with fans. His fighting style isn't always the most exciting. Um, so you're not going to be able to just throw him at the top of the card and put a bunch of trash underneath it and say, all right, now we just sit back and wait for the money to roll in. You put him on this card because you are adding a title fight. So you can already, you know, you already got two other title fights. You can say, oh, look, this is the, as the UFC likes to say, as was highlighted in a video mashup I saw on Twitter this week, the biggest night of the year. This time you can say it and it actually feels true. You, you got, you're adding another title fight to an already stacked card, but you're also not banking on this matchup to be the one that brings all the, the boys to the yard, as it were. So I think we all know that this has the real potential to be not a whole lot of fun to watch, or it has the potential to be uh, like that Demian Maya, uh, Jake Shields fight that I loved and that the grappling nerds are going to love, but everybody else is going to regard as kind of a boring letdown. Uh, that could very easily happen here, but you might as well do this one now. Like you said, with Demian Maya, you got nobody else left to, to throw him in there. Uh, Tyron Woodley, there was no other contender really screaming out that you needed to see that one. You might as well. And so I think after this, you know, the Demian Maia can't say the UFC didn't give him his opportunity, didn't, can't say, you know, they overlooked him. And then, you know, the division can move on with its life either way it goes. Although, I'm not going to lie to you, if Demian Maia walks out of here, UFC welterweight champion, I'm going to be crying tears of joy. <laughs> I mean... Wiping them with my gi. I, I like Tyron Woodley. But a Damian Maya title reign simply on the basis of of uh, its total improbability would be kind of awesome, and also because you would have basically a pure jujitsu guy with the belt in the UFC in 2017, yes. which would be hard to hate on. And he's just the nicest goddamn guy in the world. You can't dislike this guy. It's possible I spoke too soon about Robbie Lawler when I said he wasn't going to vault from that Donald Cerrone fight to number one contender status because I just looked at the welterweight rankings when Damian Maia is the number one contender, maybe getting that title fight bump up to the number one spot. Then you got Steven Thompson, who obviously just fought Tyron Woodley in a rematch that none of us ever want to see the third installment of. Then you got Robbie Lawler in number three, and behind him is Masvidal Condit and Neil Magny at four, five, six. So, uh... Maybe if Robbie Lawler does something really impressive against Donald Cerrone, he could find himself back at, in a title fight against the winner of this thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Damian Maia has three TKOs on his record. Do you want to hear what they are? Sure. At UFC 148 in July 2012, he TKO'd Dun Young Kim. And in parentheses, it says muscle spasm. Yeah, that was like a rib injury kind of thing. So it's kind of a freak deal. Okay. Uh, or he just freaked him out mentally. Won the mental game. 2007, at GFC Evolution, he TKO'd Ryan Stout. And it says in parentheses, shoulder injury. Okay. In so 2000- he's just breaking motherfuckers down is what I'm hearing. <laughs> the other TKO on Damian Maya's record, September 21st, 2001, Tormenta and El Ring, Caracas, Venezuela, TKO punches over Raul Sosa. That's right. Raul Souza's still feeling the hurt. So what I'm hearing is that Demon Maia doesn't just TKO people. He injures people. That's right. He chews them up and spits them out. Uh, what would the odds be on a prop bet that says Demian Maia knocks out Tyron Woodley? Oh, yikes, man. Um, I'm going to say that that'll get you plus 800. Not too shabby. What are the, what are the uh, prop bet odds on an injury TKO, though? 
I feel like that's got to be in there now. Don't you think an injury TKO is more likely? Like, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I mean, maybe that one's like plus 600. That's, yeah, that's possible. Maybe that's that one's possible. even money. Who knows? If you're Tyron Woodley, have you even prepared for the idea that Damian Maya is going to fight you on the feet here? Like, have you, or like, like, clearly that's Tyron Woodley's plan, right? He wants to keep this thing upright and, and box Damian Maya's lights out. How much time do you think he's spent preparing for what Damian Maya brings in the in the fisticuffs game? I'm saying it's a 30-70 split. <laughs> uh, and of the 70, you know, most of that is having dudes just jump on your back. That's how I would train if I was talking with the, Throughout the day, I would hire a guy who just follow me around, hide in the bushes and shit. And when I'm getting my car keys out, he jumps on my back and I got to defend. Just walking around. With a backpack full of bricks That's at right. all times, just yeah. preparing for what might happen. You're in, you're in the grocery store. You're opening up the the frozen case to get some uh, some waffles out. Boom, guy on your back. Got to deal with it right then and there. UFC 214, the men's welterweight champion Tyron Woodley against Damian Maya. That's going to be your co-main event, obviously, in support of the light heavyweight title fight between Daniel Cormier and John Jones. And that is something that we're going to talk about in round number three, which starts right now. I don't know why I said men's welterweight champion. But it's true. It's true. Yeah, but just there's no women's welterweight yet. division yet. So I guess I probably could have just gone welterweight there. We'll clean that up in post production. Yeah, I don't Ben, it's the granddaddy of them all in terms of UFC promotions during the summer of 2017. Daniel Cormier in the rematch against the challenger John Jones. What's your hype level on a scale of 1 to 10 here for this? Honestly, uh, it's still early in the week, so I'm trying to pace myself, but I'm at a good 8.5. I feel pretty hype. I got to tell you, I'm starting off the week at a fever pitch, and I'm just going to try to keep it keep it rolling all the way till Saturday. That's a mistake. I do, it's, it's possible. I may not have the cardio uh, to get that done. Here's what I want to ask you, though. Like, uh, this is maybe the the uh, UFC's biggest event of the year. We'll have to wait and see how uh, the rest of 2017 plays out. Clearly, it's the biggest event of the year so far. Do you feel like it's getting overshadowed a little bit by uh, Mayweather-McGregor hysteria? And and does that make you feel a little? Uh, I don't want to say bad, but to like, is that a shame for Daniel Cormier and John Jones? It is, uh, but I think that it's still for the the people firmly inside the MMA bubble. The hype is really strong here, but it does make it difficult to reach outside that bubble and get just awareness to other people and be able to tell them why it matters because they're already bombarded with just so much daily stuff about the McGregor Mayweather fight that that might be all the room in their brains that can possibly be devoted to thinking about any kind of fight sports thing. So yeah, that is a little bit of a bummer for them. But I think that the UFC did such a good job with the the promos hyping this one, uh, marketing what's there, also kind of just showing you what the UFC can really do when it puts its mind to telling the story that is actually there rather than just the one-size-fits-all approach to promoting these fights. And I think they did a good job of kind of highlighting what's really at stake here, why this matters, and why this is kind of a special one and not just, you know, another fight for another belt. Uh, The first time they fought at UFC 182 in January of 2015, 
We did a buy rate of 800000 on pay-per-view, which is not too shabby, especially for 2015. Total gate, $3.7 million. Live attendance announced anyway, 11575 Ben, over under those 800000 pay-per-view buys for UFC 214. I think under. Yeah. I think that one's going to be tough to do. Also, that was the... Kind of New Year's card, mm-hmm. right? January third. So yeah. that's right. Yeah, uh, the you know the closest that they get will do to New Year's, and that one I think is uh, usually a pretty big one for the UFC. It's always kind of on the calendar. This one, late July, uh, like you said, still being a little bit overshadowed by McGregor Mayweather. Um, I think yeah, uh, a little bit under that one, and I don't know if that's going to be the end of the world. It's still going to be bigger than a lot of the recent pay per views we've seen. I mean, if the UFC goes from doing like one hundred and fifty thousand buys. Uh, with UFC 213 or whatever they did on that one to 700,000 buys with this one, uh, I mean, that'll still be a pretty big jump. Now, we had the interview, the split-screen interview with these two during UFC on Fox 25 uh, with Brian Stan. Uh, it almost seemed to me like they're tired. Like, the, the clearly the animosity here between DC and John Jones is very real. These dudes legitimately don't like each other. Uh, but you do this interview on Fox and it's awkward as they have a, a you know as they will be when you when you get two fighters together for this kind of interview but it almost felt like both these guys are sort of like let's do this thing already we've had a million postponements in this rivalry uh it's got to be emotionally exhausting for both of these guys to think about fighting the other one so much uh daniel cormier had the shirt buttoned all the way to the top which is always a good way to look like you just forgot your tie <laughs> <laughs> and uh, John Jones obviously cl- just didn't want to be there. Uh, it just seems like they 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 are over this thing, man. Like they are ready to go. Well, that is a long time to sit and think about each other. They have to keep thinking about that same matchup over and over again. To me, the vibe I got off of John Jones was a done playing vibe. Uh, not just that he didn't want to be there, uh, but that this one is no fucking around. And that's a little scary, frankly, to see him in that mode. Because I think that, like we've talked about in the past, of him being his own worst enemy, and that some of the fights, you know, maybe he didn't prepare for super hard, uh, coasted on his own abilities. Uh, and he's even talked about that, how it seemed like he felt like he was even testing those abilities by purposely not training very hard. And this one, you get the exact opposite feel. Like he is going in there to absolutely try and murder Daniel Cormier and finish it once and for all. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that's one of the things, though, that, that heightens the stakes. Like, you talk, for Daniel Cormier, if he loses this fight, it kind of delegitimizes that entire title reign. It'll, it'll make it so that people look back on it and be like, okay, yeah, sure, you were the champion when John Jones wasn't around. Uh, but, you know, you were never really the best in the division. You were just, you know, kind of keeping the spot warm for John Jones. Um, but the thing for me that I wonder with John Jones is what it does to him if he wins. Because you hear him talking in that promo where he's talking about how he has to get his life back. And I don't know, you go and you get that old life back of John Jones, that might not be a good thing for you. you then you're going to be right back in the situation of having to deal with the, the same pressures uh, and the same fame and all that stuff that got you in trouble in the first place. It makes you wonder how that will go for him if he wins. And it's a weird, weird position for Daniel Cormier to be in. He's, he's 4-0 since that loss to Jones at UFC 182. He's got a, an, an Anthony Johnson sandwich going on here with two uh, rear naked choke wins over Anthony Johnson. And then in the middle, the split decision over Alexander Gustafson, 
uh, which was a good fight, but Hell of a fight. didn't move any units on pay-per-view. And then he's got the uh, decision over Anderson Silva, the weird last-minute uh, UFC 200 fight. <clears throat> and, I, I mean, I feel like Daniel Cormier is one of the best guys. I feel like Daniel Cormier is one of the best guys to ever do MMA. I don't feel like that's a stretch, considering, like, how successful he's been in two weight classes his amateur wrestling pedigree, and yet I do feel like you're exactly right that if he loses this fight, he will at least up to this point be known as, as as I believe John Jones said during the conference call today, one of John Jones's biggest contenders or one of John Jones's biggest challengers, uh, which it seems unfair. I guess that's the way of the world in this thing, but like, man, that would be a tough way for, for Cormier to ultimately be remembered. Yeah, well, and then the, there's a question of what you do after that because you know, Daniel Cormier is 38 years old. There's always still the option of going up, back up to heavyweight. Yeah. And, you know, he avoided it before because Cain Velasquez. Cain Velasquez has hurt so goddamn much at this point. you got to kind of move on from that concern at some point. Uh, or you just try to do full-time broadcasting. Uh, it seems like those are the options. Hanging around at light heavyweight with two losses to John Jones just doesn't seem like a feasible option. Because you're right, he's one of the best guys, so he's just going to end up smashing every other contender and ruining possible uh, future title fights in the division. So it, it doesn't seem like it would be a smart move for anybody to have him just hang around. Um, so, I don't know, you know, if he went up to heavyweight and then became the champion there, which not out of the question at all, even at his age, uh, maybe you look at him a little differently. But you're right that it, it does seem like... It, this is one of those situations that reminds you of kind of the essential unfairness of the world and of fight sports because you get in these clashes where you think that the guy who's the good guy, who's done everything right, uh, who has not done all the things wrong, who's worked hard and just had his nose to the grindstone all his whole career, you want that to pay off in a way. In, in a fictional version of this story, it pays off. And in real life, it very well may not. You, you very well may end up with John Jones um, being, you know, the bratty kid throughout a lot of this and still walking away the champion. Right. And then John Jones has been uh, very, uh, you know, inactive since that victory over Cormier at UFC 182. He's only fought one time against Owen St. Pru at UFC 197. Won that by unanimous decision, but it was kind of a, a lackluster fight, almost a listless performance from John Jones, who uh, obviously had been on and off suspension and in and out of trouble had been dabbling in some different training techniques for that. Uh, and I think we, as you said earlier, one of the biggest questions about this rematch is what version of John Jones we're going to get. Because I think anybody who knows anything about John Jones and knows like how competitive that dude is and the sort of uh, competitive fire that burns inside him expects him to come out and try to do really terrible things to Daniel Cormier to make this even more lopsided than their first fight. And, and you know, preferably I would think from his point of view, get a stoppage. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what that kind of preparation and that ultimately that kind of pressure does to John Jones, uh, because you know, in his at least recent UFC career, maybe even his entire UFC career, I don't know that we've ever seen this exact I don't know that we've ever seen him faced with this exact challenge. Yeah, no, that's fair. And But I also think that uh, when you're trying to figure out how's, how's the layoff, how's all that time off going to affect him, you know, exactly what version of it is going to show up, I think a 
a different version shows up to fight somebody like Daniel Cormier, who he has very real reason to want to take apart limb by limb, then shows up to fight Ovent St. Prue. I think you've seen that in the past with John Jones, where if it's tough for him to get motivated for a fight uh, at, you know, because of the opponent, you, you see a very different kind of preparation and performance. Uh, and I, you, know, you won't have any issues preparing and making sure you're ready to go against Daniel Cormier. Against Ovin St. Prue, I'm sure there were some motivation problems for John Jones at times. Do you expect this thing to go any different than UFC 182, considering all the water under the bridge since then? Or is this uh, uh, just a tough, a tough order for, for DC? I mean, I think he might make it a little more competitive, uh, but I still think that it's it's hard for me to see exactly where he wins this fight. Because I, I don't think, you know, he talks about John Jones going to be trying to grab a hold of him because he's going to be piecing him up on the feet. I just don't see that happening, man. I, it's The the range is going to present such a problem. John Jones is so good at using that range. Um, I mean, your, your best hope might be to get him docked a couple early points for eye pokes. Because uh, you know that's something you're going to want to keep an eye out for in this fight. Other than that, you know, you saw a, his not going to out wrestle him. You know, not going to use that old strength against John Jones very well. And even if you do get him down, he's popping right back up. It's hard for me to plot out a course to victory in my mind for Daniel Cormier. This thing's in California, where the new uh, weight rules will be in effect. Right, new weight cutting rules. What's the rule on grabbing the towel? That's what I was going to say. I don't know Daniel Cormier is going to be able to get an assist from a towel uh, this time around. With he kind of ruined it for everybody, didn't he? You notice in New York now, man, they are not playing with that towel bullshit anymore. Right, well, I think you only need it to work once, right? Like you only <laughs> expect true. it to work once. Uh, and then you're kind of on your own from there. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if any of these new regulations in California uh, wreak any havoc on the lineup of this entire fight card. Obviously, uh, it's a pretty big weight cut for both guys to get down to 205, I think. So... Uh, that's just something out of the cage to keep your eye on. Uh, ben, do you want to do just saying stuff and then, uh, then we'll get out of here for this week. Sure. Uh, my just saying stuff is Daniel Cormier, John Jones related. So I'll just go ahead and do it first, Ben this week. I'm just saying, isn't it the best case scenario for the sport and the best case scenario for fans? If Daniel Cormier actually goes out there and beats John Jones at UFC 214, think about it this way. I would say this is the greatest rivalry in the history of the light, light heavyweight division, arguably the greatest rivalry in UFC history between two guys who ultimately will probably go down as two of the best in UFC history. If John Jones wins, I'm not sure exactly what we do. Like maybe he goes and fights the winner of the Paperboy versus the Great and Powerful Oz. Uh, maybe he moves up to heavyweight. But if Daniel Cormier wins, then we get to do a trilogy. And then the insane and wonderful feud between these two guys gets to roll on. And even though they seem like maybe they're a little bit tired of it, uh, I say, man, just give me all the John Jones, Daniel Cormier you possibly can. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying we mentioned a little bit but didn't really talk about it how uh, Darren Elkins got a win and got his split decision victory over Dennis Bermudez at the UFC on Fox on Saturday night. That makes it uh, five in a row there for Darren Elkins. Now, you remember back in 2016 when Darren Elkins was was made sport of on the internet for his terrible tattoo that says the damage across his chest and that when he posted pictures of him in the tattoo parlor right after getting it with the guy who gave him the tattoo with his arm around him, it looked on his face like he was already regretting it. Yeah. Now, he shows up for this one and he's got a dragon 
that has appeared on his body as well, mm-hmm. looking like it is crawling towards the terrible tattoo on his chest. I see where you're going. As if to consume it. Yeah. And it seems the more tattoos he gets, the stronger he becomes. Okay, all right, yeah. Okay, I'm on board. I'm just saying, maybe all you need, all that's standing between Darren Elkins and a UFC title is like a a tribal armband, uh, maybe like a butterfly on his lower back. I just think the more terrible tattoos Darren Elkins gets, the more unstoppable he becomes, Chad. Okay. I'm just saying. You are, in fact, just saying. Maybe it's like the infinity symbol behind his ear, something like that. Uh, a Bukowski quote inside his forearm, perhaps. Just think about it. I, I Now I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC 214. And then we will look ahead to Fight Night 114, live from Mexico City, the event everyone's talking about. Headlined by a flyweight fight between Sergio Pettis, Young Serge, and Brandon Moreno. So that will be interesting. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I'm just telling you, the last thing you want to see in a dark Adali is Darren Elkins standing there, and he's got a tattoo on his shoulder that says, Not all who wander are lost. Oh, you're in trouble now. That dragon is going to cleanse that damaged tattoo with fire, isn't it? That would be a beautiful sight. Just fire all the way down across Darren Elkins. Chest, wrap it around the you know, if he goes that